Come on back. Come on back. Uh, tempting as it is to uh, have discussion about uh, the many wonderful and uh, in some cases, I think provocative things Fred has said. Uh, we're going to do that more after lunch, uh, and at this point, I'll talk more and, and we'll do practices more about the other side of the equation, which is the part about assertiveness. And it's interesting to consider that, in some senses, it's relatively straightforward to be loving, kind, compassionate, and forgiving, let's say. Maybe difficult, but it's fairly straightforward. Um, on the other hand, it's relatively straightforward as well to be uh, strong, firm, draw lines in the sand, speak truth to power, not take it anymore, uh, you know, have a quality of gravity and dignity and strength of heart. Uh, to have resolve and, and determination, uh, to uh, work against injustice, that again, very important and relatively straightforward. The combination of the two in, a, in the workplace, raising a child, sustaining a relationship, uh, having friends and family, uh, dealing with real-world situations, uh, you know, people that uh, bump into us in life in various ways, combining the two, combining the quality of large-heartedness that sees the big picture and, as the Buddha said a long time ago, recognizes that getting angry with people is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. You know, how to hold that on the one hand, and yet on the other hand... um, uh, hold uh, a sense of being an advocate for oneself, taking one's own suffering seriously, being a stand for justice, uh, speaking the truth and being strong, going on record. How do we bring those two together? So that's really what the thrust is here. And uh, in particular this morning, I'm going to focus on the second half of that equation with some foundation practices. First, about mindfulness, and then uh, feeling cared about and self-compassion, and then feeling stronger and safer, which are foundational for uh, being assertive in the real world and um, also support that sense of being whole and present and strong and here that enables us and is a factor of being more uh, releasing and, and uh, big picture aware and compassionate and forgiving, if you will, over there. So that's the frame here. So if we could, I thought we could start with a mindfulness practice because in my experience, first of all, to be, to be strong and centered, uh, an image that's very real for me is a tree. 
I love trees. You know, it's funny. I probably was an ant in a previous life. You know, it's my <laughs> Lord of the Rings thing. But anyway, um, you know, I dropped our son off once at a music camp where he was a counselor in training, and we just rolled into the parking lot under the trees, and I felt immediately happier. And I thought, oh, yeah, trees. So I, if you think of it, things happen to us. If we feel knocked over by them, uh, that's not good. Or if we feel rigid, you know, like a wall, that's not good. But if we can feel like a tree that has things blowing through it, that jiggles certainly the leaves and branches, yet we remain there and we remain deeply rooted, that is a good way to be. What helps us be rooted? What helps us stay present with what's there without being hijacked by it? In the afternoon, in particular, I'll talk more about the Buddha's analysis of emotional reactivity, which is very consistent with modern neuroscience and neuropsychology. Um, But for the moment, I'll just say that one of the key factors of that kind of spaciousness and centeredness and rootedness is mindfulness. It's the capacity to step back from what's happened and in particular step back from our reactions to what's happened so that we're no longer identified with the movie, but instead sitting back in our seat going, wow, or okay. But right there we have some observing ego function in the language of Western psychology. Uh, We're off the screen. We have some spaciousness, some mindfulness around it. It's not always easy, though, to be mindful, is it? We did not evolve to be mindful. You know, ancestors, they were very zen and totally chill and present and doing deep belly breathing there in the Serengeti. Champo! They got eaten because they weren't paranoid enough to be looking around, you know, at the, you know, things about to get them. Right? And then also we live in a fairly ADD culture. And also, frankly, if people have been deeply wounded, especially in early childhood, uh, or not even necessarily that, but if they have been wounded, it's, of course, appropriate and natural to be very vigilant, to be continually scanning. So for a variety of reasons, getting control of the spotlight of attention, which is also a kind of vacuum cleaner, sucking what it rests upon into the brain because neurons that fire together wire together for better or worse. Where we rest our attention is what gradually shapes our brain over time. So getting control over that spotlight and vacuum cleaner is profoundly important and very fundamental. So I thought what I could do with you is take you through a little practice with seven specific suggestions for deepening mindfulness that have a neurological basis. Uh, I'll spare you the neurological explanation this workshop. If you like, you can go to my website, rickhansonson.net, and uh, tons of stuff is posted there, freely offered, including slide sets, PowerPoint slide sets from other workshops I've done, including uh, under the heading of steadiness of mind, you know, various ways to have greater steadiness of mind. Okay? So, and then um, we'll do a kind of a challenge at the very end to see if you can stay present with each and every breath for a number of minutes, uh, which is not always easy to do. Okay, you want to try it? Okay? Like any practice, feel free to ignore my suggestions entirely. I think this goes for Fred's as well. He'd agree to this. Uh, take good care of yourself. This is not an encounter group or a therapy session. You know, while there's typically more value in the deep end of the pool, be sure you can swim back on your own. Okay? Uh, you know, and, uh, but I, there's no intention to stir up, you know, horrible, difficult things uh, in these practices here. Okay, let's begin. So if you could... Find a sense of being present with yourself. Fred uh, laid, I think, a very good foundation 
for basic coming into the body, coming into the moment. I will use uh, the breath as an object of attention to anchor your awareness with. But if, there, if for any reason you want to choose something else, that's perfectly fine. Uh, for some people, especially those who've had very stressful, even traumatic experiences, uh, body awareness and in particular awareness of breath can sometimes be re-triggering. So feel very free to pick a different target of attention, such as sensations in other parts of your body or an image, such as perhaps the Buddha figures up here in the front, a flower or, or a saying, a phrase, a memory. Uh, you know, when I'm at the dentist's office, I go to Tuolumne Meadows in my mind. Uh, whatever works for you. Although I will speak of the breath. Okay, so with your eyes open or closed as you like, letting breathing come and go as it does, not trying to control it, although perhaps you know, gently allowing yourself to progressively settle down so that breathing naturally often settles down as well. Letting sounds come and go, thoughts come and go, abiding as presence. Unlike many meditations, I'll offer a number of specific suggestions. I recognize suggestions can sometimes be a little intrusive or annoying, and I just ask your forgiveness uh, up front. This is a kind of mini workout, if you will, in mindfulness, in steadiness of mind, sustained presence with some basic awareness of an anchor for attention, such as breathing. I get an image of a kind of buoy bobbing up and down gently in a lake or ocean. That's the breath or other target of attention. And then grounded in that target of attention and openness to and awareness of whatever else moves through the mind without getting caught up in it, without chasing after things that are pleasant or resisting things that are unpleasant that arise in the mind. Gently moving up and down with the breath. Continually letting go. And then the first suggestion, set an intention for this meditation. You can do this 
top down, in a sense, by giving yourself a little instruction, probably with words like being mindful or steady the mind, but also open to intention bottom up, where there's more of a felt sense in the body of what the realization of the intention would be like, a kind of giving oneself over to being mindful, perhaps by getting a sense of modeling or channeling almost, someone who is for you an exemplar of mindfulness. However you do it, setting an intention for this sitting. And then the second suggestion, really relax. For example, take several breaths in which the exhalation is at least twice as long as the inhalation. For example, inhaling for a count of three and exhaling for a count of six. Really relaxing. Third suggestion open to the feeling of being cared about. For example, bringing to mind someone that you know cares about you. It need not be a perfect relationship, but in at least one important part, you know that you matter to this person. 
someone from your life today or in the past. And then as you bring this person who cares about you to mind or perhaps a group of people, try to help yourself get a growing sense of being liked or appreciated or even cherished and loved. Helping yourself to sink into and open to, as you can, without strain, the felt sense of feeling cared about. Fourth suggestion, as you can, help yourself feel as safe as is reasonable to feel. For example, bringing to mind that you are right now probably basically all right. That right now you are in a protected setting. among good people, with resources inside you and in your life, that can help you deal with what life brings, so that you can truly afford to relax unnecessary anxiety. Help yourself relax any unnecessary guarding right now, or bracing right now, so that you can increasingly soften and open right now, helping yourself feel as safe as is reasonable to be. Fifth suggestion as a factor of steadiness of mind is to open to and encourage some positive emotion right now. 
not forcing anything or straining, but as you can, opening to a sense of basic well-being, which may contain pain or upset, contraction, and yet the space altogether has a well-being in it. As you can, perhaps, a sense of gratitude, thinking maybe of something that makes you happy. Perhaps a sense of peacefulness. These positive feelings may well be mild or subtle. And yet see if you can help them gradually pervade your body and your mind. Not straining or forcing, more a matter of opening to or welcoming in some positive emotions. Sixth suggestion, getting a sense of awareness like the sky, like a boundless space with no edges through which contents of mind like sensations or sounds or thoughts come and go with a kind of bird's eye view panoramic vistas, as if you're observing what moves to your mind from on top of a mountain, seeing it spread out before you in the vast plains below, or as if you are looking up and seeing thoughts or sounds moving through awareness like, like clouds across the sky, a sense of panoramic vistas as as you be with your own awareness.
abiding as awareness, as a kind of space through which thoughts and sensations, etc., come and go. And then the final suggestion as a factor for mindfulness. Get a sense that whatever the benefits may be of your practice, that they are sinking into you. You are taking in the good of your practice. Like water moving into a sponge or a golden salve or balm coming down into you. The good is present and it's coming into you, weaving its way into your body, your brain, and your being. And then, on the basis of these seven suggestions, see if you can stay present with each and every breath from beginning to end for three minutes. Receiving the breath, devoted to it and letting go of everything else, following each Inhalation from beginning to end. Following each exhalation from beginning to end for the next three minutes.
one back. As Fred said earlier, sometimes three, 45 minutes for meditation, or even three minutes for meditation, can sometimes seem quite long, can't it? Or short. So I thought we could take a few uh, comments or questions about these factors of mindfulness, and then I want to create a little context uh, for mindfulness as well as more active practices. Amy, uh, our superstar here, microphone runner, will get some aerobic exercise. Zipping the mic along. If you're going to use the mic, the trick is to remember that it's an ice cream cone and you hold it close to your mouth and even rest it on your chin and that'll make it work well. Anybody want to share or offer a question or a comment, especially how to do those specific suggestions or anything that came up for you? Great. That's an easy microphone run. Is the mic on? Make, just leave the switch on throughout the whole time. That'll be the easy way to do it. Great. Good. Thank you very much. I have really soft breath, so I've looked at where to even find it, and I normally focus with the nostrils. And I thought, great, three minutes. Let's see if I can do that. And I can barely get through one cycle. It's really hard to even, I can find the inhale. I very often can't even find the exhale. And I just wondered if you could comment on the kind of soft, I, I guess it would be shallow, shallow breathing. So it's very hard to stick with it, and it's very easy to get off into thinking. Great. So, and that speaks to a larger point, really, particularly if you're trying to initially train in steadiness of mind. The pathway traditionally, and it makes a lot of sense neurologically, is to initially focus on one target of attention and try to almost like do, you know, mindfulness push-ups or whatever that is, military presses, I don't know, anything like that. Um, Part one, it helps to pick one target of attention, whatever it is, and zero in. Two, if the target of attention is not stimulating enough, it's really hard to stay with it. So part of the art is to find what will be stimulating enough for you and yet challenging enough to build those mindfulness muscles because nobody has ADD in a video arcade, right? Video game palace. So so I would say for you, you might look at your body altogether, get a sense of breathing altogether. You might even rest a hand on the diaphragm, you know, so you could sense what's happening there more. Um, I like the internal sensation of the air coming in, uh, cool coming in, warm going out, uh, partly because I'm getting uh, extra benefits there, of becoming more aware of my interior. Uh, so that, those are the things I would say. Uh, you might try counting the breath, you know, the classic suggestion, each breath is one, count up to 10, start over. If you lose track, start over, or count down from 10, which is a little more cognitively demanding and can keep your mind in the game longer sometimes. You know, yeah, combine it with walking. You know, one complete cycle would be one. You know, once left foot, right foot, one, left foot, right foot, two. Time it with the breath. These are, it's okay to try different things. Okay, another comment or question is about steadiness of mind right there. Keep the hand up till the microphone comes, please. Great, thank you. Uh, thanks, I, I found that very helpful. And uh, my question's very simple. 
can you repeat the seven pieces yeah. uh, for those of us that were out of our analytic mind? Yes, indeed. And two parts here. I'll button my shirt further up so I can get the mic up. I tend to have a soft voice, speaking of soft breath. Whoops. Um, so the seven are uh, set an intention, relax, open to a sense of being cared about, which we'll practice with in a moment, actually, further. Help yourself feel as safe as you can reasonably feel. It's tough to be mindful when we feel the need to be vigilant, right, to the outside world. Open to a sense of well-being. It's interesting that so many factors of deep concentration have to do with positive emotion, like rapture or joy. And technically that does things in the brain that bring in dopamine and keep it steady so you can really focus. Uh, The one after that was uh, spacious awareness. Uh, Again, by having a sense of a bird's eye view or relating to the contents or, or relating to awareness as if it's a great space, that tends to activate networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right side, that support spacious awareness. Kind of the bird's eye view, however you get it. Uh, and then last, uh, sense and intend that the fruits are going into you. In other words, you're taking in the good because that defeats the negativity bias of the brain, which is like Velcro for the negative but Teflon for the positive, and helps you kind of force the brain to really internalize the fruits of practice um, into implicit memory because positive experiences like the fruits of practice or realizations have plain vanilla memory systems and uh, typically in an ordinary memory systems things have to be held in short-term buffers for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row before they can sift down into long-term storage. How often do we actually do that though with positive experience? So it's important whereas negative experiences get transferred immediately. Once burned, twice shy. You know, so that's why the seventh suggestion is to do that. I often think how we go through life and we we earn our insight or we earn our positive state of mind, just like Fred did just before the break. You earn that that awareness, whatever was positive and wholesome there. You know, and yet so often we just kind of let it dribble through our fingers, or we leave money lying on the table, you know, or other rewards, rather than really trying to help them stick to our ribs you know, psychologically. So that's that seventh suggestion. Maybe one last person, one more, and then I'll move on. Okay, a couple comments about mindfulness. So first of all, in real practice, and I should add also that uh, uh, these talks, uh, including particularly the practice portion of them, will be posted on Dharma Seed uh, within a couple of weeks by Spirit Rock, and you'll be able to access these guided practices Fred's teachings, etc., on Dharma Seed. Also, I repost uh, the ones that relate to me on my own website, and there are other uh, practices on my website and, and also explanations of things like these seven factors of mindfulness. Okay? The second thing I want to say is kind of a framing com- comment, which is this. I think that in healing or psychological growth or uh, spiritual practice, there are three main phases. In the first phase, we be with what's there, right? We experience the experience, we feel our pain, we know it, we, we are aware of it, we, we bear it, we stay with it. Okay. In the second phase, well, actually, I'll say another word about that. That's always worth doing. 
okay? It gives us a sense of distance, particularly from painful material. It deepens our capacities for mindfulness bit by bit, because every time we're mindful, neurons that fire together wire together, helps us be more mindful the next day. And sometimes, pure mindfulness is curative. Just being aware helps that negative material move along. Great. But often, mindfulness is not enough. And that's where we move into the second and third phases. In the second phase, we release what's there. And then in the third phase, we replace it with something positive, helpful, wise, useful, wholesome, etc. All right? For example, in the Noble Eightfold Path of Buddhism, uh, the Buddha laid out right mindfulness. That's one of the eight elements. He also identified right effort or wise effort, which is essentially pulling weeds and planting flowers in the garden of the mind. All three phases are important. I think mindfulness is the most important of the three. It's the foundation for the others. Sometimes you just can't let it go. Sometimes you just can't draw something in. But you can always be mindful of what's there, even if what's there is hellacious. Often people, me, exhibit A, want to skip over that first phase to the release phase because I don't want to feel my pain. Move on, baby. You know, And we've got to do that first phase for the second and third phase to have traction. On the other hand, often we call ourselves or people we work with to be aware of their stuff, to feel it, to do the first phase, but we're under-resourced. We don't have enough capacity to really do that. And being aware of it is like popping up a trapdoor to hell. You know, As they say in AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. Right? And sometimes we need to step to the third phase to internalize resources, a felt sense of others being with us, I think about Dante's Inferno where he went into hell with an angel by his side. You know, the angel, the poet Virgil is an angel going with him through hell. We need to resource ourselves to be able to bear our experience. So we jump to the third phase, resource ourselves so that we can do the first phase. The other point is that I think there's a kind of Goldilocks spot that Fred alluded to where it's the just right place. Not too tall, not too short, not too long, not too uh, whatever, not too, uh, not too long, not too brief, uh, not too hot, not too cold. There's that Goldilocks point where we've been with it long enough. It's no longer productive to do the first phase, to be simply mindful of it. And, uh, and, if, and if we get stuck there, if we're just kind of hanging out in mindfulness past the point of usefulness, because neurons that fire together wire together, it's like doing one more lap in hell and digging the track a little deeper every time we go around it. And it's time to move on. And if I may be so bold, I think that in both uh, you know, Buddhism in the West in the last 20 years and as mindfulness has moved into Western psychology as well as into non-dual approaches, there's been perhaps too much of an emphasis on the first of those three phases and a kind of dismissal of the second and third because they have pitfalls. Every path has pitfalls. The trick is to not fall into the pit, but stay on the path. You know, Avoid the pitfalls of the second and third phase of being too goal-directed or self-critical, and also avoid the pitfall of the first phase, which is just kind of hanging out in, your, in, in misery. Okay? So during the remainder of my part, at least, um, in... Um, this morning and the afternoon, I'll mostly be focusing on the second and third phases. And sometimes that's frustrating, you know, 
We try to open up to feelings of safety, and they won't come. We try to open up to the sense of being cared about. It won't happen. You know, we try to open up to some positive emotion, some well-being. And all we have is irritation at Rick because he's reminding us to feel happy, and I don't feel happy, whatever. You know, and part of it is, you're right, it's tough. Sometimes it's tough to do the second and third phase. So I just want to acknowledge that going in. I'm not trying to be um, cocky about it. It is tough sometimes. And sometimes, you know, we just don't get the result. We get the obstruction to it. And then we need to be mindful of the obstruction and maybe come back to the second and third phase later. Okay. So with that as a frame, let's now dump, jump into another example of working with that second phase. And in this case, I want to explore feeling cared about and self-compassion. Because it's very valuable in its own right to have compassion for oneself. And I think in my own experience of working with my own grievances toward others, uh, the things that are challenging to find forgiveness for or to move on from, you know, that uh, it's always for me been vitally important to begin with a sense of compassion for myself. It's interesting that there's a ton of research these days on self-compassion, and it's been revealed how very, very important it is. And yet, it's actually hard for many of us to do. Many people can find compassion, which is simply the wish that a being not suffer. They can find compassion, along with often related emotions of sympathetic concern. They can find compassion for others, for their pets, you know, for hungry people, uh, for the billion who go to bed every night on it with an empty belly. You know, uh, they can find compassion for them, but not for themselves. You know, there's a phrase in psychology called negative grandiosity. It's the notion that I'm so important and so different and so special that of all beings on the planet, I deserve the least compassion or kindness. You know, and I look at it this way. It, it, you know, what's the friend test? If I have, if I know a dear friend and I wish something for my friend, wholesome. I wish my friend to be happy. I wish my friend to not be in pain. I wish my friend to work through a difficult divorce. I wish for my friend to find a job. I wish for my friend to not worry so much about his children. Whatever it is I wish for my friend, well, if my friend over there happens to wear my name tag, why not wish the same things for oneself? If they're wholesome to wish there, they're wholesome to wish here. And that's the essence of self-compassion. So let's do a little practice here in which I'll drop in some things that are based on research that are factors of self-compassion. Okay? So to begin with, and you might challenge yourself if you like to leave your eyes open. Uh, if, 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 if that makes it harder, feel very free to close them. Um, we're kind of here in the locker room, as it were, training for the, you know, the, game, the playing field out there. Sometimes it feels like a battlefield out there. And um, you know, so the more we train like we play, you know, the more we train like we do, the, the better it is. And oftentimes uh, we are in situations where we've got to keep our eyes open, uh, in which it would be very helpful to also have some self-compassion. So to begin with, eyes closed or open, whatever works for you best, it's fine. If you could go back to that sense of feeling cared about or, or just start anew. I'll take a little more time with it this time. For example, you might bring to mind a, a human. It could be an animal companion, a pet, perhaps a spiritual being. It could be a group of people in your life today or in your past. 
getting a sense of them being with you, perhaps gazing at you, and using that as a kind of prompt to help to try to activate or call forth in yourself some positive resource state, some positive state of mind. like the feeling of being cared about. As I said, the relationship doesn't need to be perfect. Few relationships are. But you know for sure that this being or group of people wishes you well. See if you can open to feeling included, or tuned into, truly seen, liked, respected, or appreciated. Perhaps even cherished or loved. And to use the Buddha's language about bliss or rapture as a factor of mindfulness, see if you can help this experience of feeling cared about be as intense as possible. Don't struggle with it, don't fight it, but see if you can open to it filling you, pervading you, pervading your body and heart and mind. You might intensify the experience by perhaps putting a hand on your cheek or on your heart as if the most loving, the kindest being you know is truly wishing you well. Feel free to bring to mind multiple beings, multiple groups, whatever works for you, to, as much as you can, kindle a blaze of feeling cared about, and then continue to add logs to the fire. mindful of what it feels like in your body, in your mind, your thoughts, in your face, in your throat, your heart, to feel seen, liked, loved. And then 
letting whatever has arisen for you in being cared about, letting it move more to the background and shifting attention now to someone that is easy for you to feel compassion for. A person you know, or perhaps a someone far away, perhaps an animal, perhaps a group of people. See if you can find the wish that they not suffer. Maybe with related feelings that you wish that they be happy and well. You might strengthen the experience of compassion with soft thoughts in the back of your mind, like, may you not suffer. Or perhaps a soft thought that's specific to the person. May your chemotherapy go well. Or may you move on in ways that are good for you after this loss. exploring and being mindful of what the experience of compassion is like. What it's like in your body, your heart, your thoughts. Then knowing what the feeling of compassion is, what it's like as an experience, centering in, giving yourself over to the experience of compassion. Now swing that compassion to yourself. yourself in general these days, for starters. Knowing the ways in which for you, like for everyone, there is suffering. There is stress, there is challenge. There are difficulties coming around the bend for you. Can you wish yourself well? Can you wish that you not suffer? perhaps strengthened with thoughts like, may I not suffer 
may I find ease. Or perhaps something specific, like may this back pain ease up. May I sleep better. May I feel less irritated with my teenager. May I not be so hard on myself. Releasing obstructions to bringing compassion to yourself. It's not necessary for the target of compassion to be perfect, to be without fault or sin. Just about no one is. It's okay to bring compassion to yourself. Studies have shown that bringing compassion to ourselves help us become more resilient and we're able to make this world a better place and be more loving toward others. It's good for others for you to be compassionate toward yourself. And then in particular, if you like, bringing compassion to a specific injury you have suffered or wound or loss or injustice that's been done to you, a grievance perhaps, some mistreatment, perhaps something current or in your past that still is sending ripples through your life. And see if you can just explore the different ways without judgment or change or solutions, just opening to ways that you have felt hurt, mistreated, harmed, injured by a particular situation. not getting into the story of it at all, but simply extending compassion. In the Buddha's language, compassion radiating from you in all directions, without reservation, omitting none. Compassion for the different aspects of this wounding situation the different aspects of the way it affected you.
centering in compassion while being aware of the wounds and the pain. Not getting sucked into the pain. Aware of it, but centered in waves of compassion radiating from you, directed at your own pain. And then letting go of the particular situation and its related pains. Letting go of that, letting your mind disengage from all that. And finding your way into a softness of heart, radiating, loving, wishing yourself well. A kind of generosity toward yourself. Finding a being on your own side, not against others, but for yourself. So, by the way, we're getting the windows closed and turning the air conditioning on. I think it'll have a lot of people in here. Uh, Any comments or questions? Both what you experienced and also anything about 
the method, if you will, the how-to-do of self-compassion. Please. I'm Kat. Uh, I had a question. When you're bringing into your awareness an experience that was uh, painful for you, in which you suffered, and also holding compassion with that, I was playing around with, is the suffering like here, like outside of me? Is it in me? Is the compassion coming from there in here? Is it coming from in here towards sort of locationally? How Do you have suggestions? Well, great question. And I was just internally recalling my own experience of doing this. And my point of view tends to bounce around a little, you know, and I think that's pretty normal. So sometimes I'll have a sense, especially if I'm extending compassion for a younger version of myself, I'll, I'll see little Ricky, you know, uh, or I'll see a situation and I'll, I'll kind of see them over there. And then there'll be a kind of switch and then there'll be a felt sense of it's the pains in here. And then there's that. You know, either one I think is okay. I think people just tend to move around a bit. The crux is to not get sucked into the pain. The crux is to keep regenerating the stance of well-wishing um, as the primary abiding. You know? Okay. Other comments or questions? Right there. Hello, my name is Karen, and um, my question is, if one um, holds compassion for oneself, does then one ask forgiveness from someone we may have hurt? Hmm. I mean, if, if something, if the compassion is, if, if we are forgiving ourselves for something that we did, um, do we do we does it stop there or are we obligated to then take that to someone else? If I follow you right, um, first part, um, sometimes when we have compassion for ourselves, we realize that there's a hurt and then we are moved to action. It's interesting that research on what happens in the brains of people who do a, a lot of compassion practice, is that one of the areas that tends to light up are motor circuits. It's as if the instruction simply to be compassionate in all directions without reference to anyone in particular primes an inclination to respond. Technically, compassion itself is is the wish, not necessarily uh, the response. Sometimes we can have compassion for beings that we can't do a single thing for other than to bear witness to their suffering, which sometimes is the most important thing of all, you know. Um, But there is this movement to act, and sometimes the target of that action is ourselves. We realize out of compassion for ourselves that it would help us to ask for forgiveness perhaps from another person, right? Mm -hmm. Second, um, it's important to distinguish that compassion is not approval, and we're not waiving our rights, we're not sanctioning others. We're not giving up our own needs by being compassionate for them. You know, I, for example, think of myself as having, you know, a little example. I think of uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, the tyrant of Iraq, and when he was 
in the process of the U.S. invasion, just before he was captured, uh, his sons were killed. And while I personally recognize the ways that uh, Saddam slaughtered tens of thousands, really, of his own people in various ways, I felt compassion for him to lose his sons, his children. You know, I'm a father, I have a son and a daughter, young adult, and I could have compassion. So these things can live side by side. The third point about compassion is that uh, why do we do it? There are different kinds of reasons. Uh, in the Buddhist frame, compassion is offered out of enlightened self-interest. There's a recognition that one of the great, uh, that it's a very strong factor to help the mind and heart grow quieter and more peaceful, to, to live more in harmony with, with the world so that we're less troubled by it. Um, you know, I think of the ways in which love, broadly defined, is the same whether it flows out or flows in. It's interesting that love doesn't drain us. Love feeds us. You know? And I'll close by just saying uh, the, the true story of a Tibetan monk who was uh, jailed by the Chinese government for decades and tortured routinely. And then when he finally got out, you know, um, he was talking with the Dalai Lama and telling some of his, you know, what happened to him you know, after the Dalai Lama asked him questions. And at one point the Dalai Lama turned to him and kind of burst out. Uh, but wasn't there, was there not a time when you feared for your life? And the monk replied, well, the only time I actually feared for my life was when I felt like I was losing my compassion for my jailers. Like that's how he defined his own life, for his own self-interest. Maybe one more person and then we'll... See if we have time for a little more. Right there, that's okay. I think the mic passing may favor people in the center of the room, but I will try as a diversity thing. I will try to be diverse to the, to the fringes. Okay. I think I probably know the answer to this, which is practice, practice, practice. But this is really friggin' hard. And, and I found myself going to that niggling, sort of infantile, narcissistic place of... Um, First, I have to say, I think I live my life compassionately, and I do help people in my life, and that's what I do. But I went to this niggling little place of, well, you know, my situation is much worse than everybody else's. And, you know, how can I have compassion for them? Because my situation is so much worse. And it's just sort of in the meditation, I kind of went there, and I found it really hard to, you know, I can only think of violent metaphors to get me out of there. Help. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very glad you're surfacing this, um, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about after lunch. And John Wellwood, great psychologist, has a wonderful phrase, spiritual bypass. And what he means by that phrase is the usage of methods, which it, which can be, and, and those methods can be quote unquote spiritual methods, but they can also be kind of more broadly defined. You know, other kinds of methods, you know, uh, moral methods, uh, philosophical views, whatever. Using a method to bypass uh, material that needs to be worked in a more, uh, in a fuller and, and in some sense more authentic way, more from the bottom up. It needs to be honored. Okay? And I think it's important to not leap to compassion practices or loving-kindness practices or forgiveness practices 
or personal virtue and restraint practices as a way to not fully feel the pain or not feel not fully um, be an advocate for ourselves. It's, a, it's an art. So it's one of the aspects of that that I have found that as the first step, it, which Fred alluded to as well in terms of the phasing of this, the first step, I think, I think the first step is to be mindful, is to recognize, ouch, this hurts. Okay? Second step is a, is a quality of self-compassion. Oh, you know, I wish I didn't hurt. You know, in a, in a recognition. I think there are many people, as a practicing therapist, I see them routinely, that are actually have, have jumped too quickly to the forgiveness phase. And they need to go back. And the, the, the issue for them is they, don't, they need to more fully own the ways they were really nailed. They were walking through the crosswalk of life. And the light was green and they were taken out. Uh, whether it was you know, in a family situation or structural uh, oppression that uh, they truly are a victim in a very legitimate and honorable sense. I think sometimes the connotation of victim has slipped into the vocabulary in a derogative way. You know? And I don't think it's... In, I think the truth is you're walking through the crosswalk, you're nailed. Bam! You know, if you're bullied, if you're picked on, if you're ganged up on, if people misuse their power to harm you, if you're molested or abused, uh, if someone has murdered your son... You know, you're the victim of that event. If you're, the, if, you, if you're discriminated against, if doors are closed, if you hit glass ceilings, you know, things are happening to you. To me, it's part of the truth is to honor that and own that and face that piece of the truth. So that's there. Then it's to get on one's own side. It is a fundamental stance to get on our side, to be for ourselves, not against others, but for ourselves. And I think that's a difficult thing for many, many people. You know, Pema Chodron has this lovely line. She says, the, she's a uh, wonderful teacher. Uh, not everybody knows that she's a mom. You know, she's a very, rel- you know, kind of mom kind of person uh, who then took robes and has become a nun and a great teacher. She has a wonderful line, which is, um, the root of com- uh, Buddhism is compassion. And the root of compassion is self-compassion. You know, it starts at home. So we get on our own side, we stand for ourselves, and then we look and see what's in my own enlightened self-interest. Right? And then I think very often, after we've done that part, then it, we start realizing, oh, it's in, my, it's in my enlightened self-interest to engage this process of finding a way to be at peace with what has happened. It doesn't mean I preferred it. It doesn't mean I give it my moral sanction. It doesn't mean that I don't think the people that did it you know, should not you know, have justice done in some way. But it does mean that I uh, do not want to be afflicted by this any longer. And I'm going to find a way to deal with this. Which sometimes involves, often it involves, strong assertiveness. As well as strong coming to terms and strong recognition of the complexity of the whole situation that led to the, the bad thing that happened. Do you, I'm sorry, but do you include in this... I mean, Use the mic, okay? Sorry. And like family dynamics type stuff, which is sort of twisted and more confused than just, you know, having a building fall on you. You know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to... You, I feel embarrassed saying these things. No. But. Oh, for sure. I, I think that, if I understand you right... Um,
I mean, this I think bad a, things I happen think. or pain. I think there's. I think pain comes from many, many sources. You know, out there and in here, and uh, family pain is sometimes the most intractable and longest lasting. And there are consequences. I mean, I'm still reactive to things after I'm 58, almost 59. I'm still reactive. I find myself, I observe reactions that arise that are rooted in the first year, you know, the first 10 years of my life with my parents and also with other kids in school. And that's how the brain is. The brain learns. We can't just snap our fingers and say, oh, I'm over that now. My personal experience is that um, I think a lot of us, me included, we need to go back and truly honor our pain. We need to really face it and recognize it and be on our own side and be sweet to ourselves about it and go, wow, they did nail me. That really was upsetting, you know, and not paper it over. Yeah, that's a part of self-compassion especially and, and mindfulness, seeing what's there, you know. Um, I see a lot of people, frankly, who let others weigh off the hook too much. And that's part of what keeps them stuck because they actually are letting others off the hook. You know, for example, the common phrase, well, they're just doing the best they can. Well, in one sense they are, in the sense that the universe is deterministic and you know, things are unfolding above the quantum level and blah, blah, blah. You know, things, they did what they could, right? Okay, that's one part of the truth. But I know a lot of people, me included, who don't always do the best we truly can. You know, I think of you know, just ordinary parenting or getting through a day. Uh, I didn't do the best I really could. And sometimes you know, others really don't do the best they could. Yeah, and I think seeing that is part of the truth. And if, you know, the ultimate freedom, and it's interesting, the Buddha's very radical view, the ultimate root of suffering is ignorance and delusion. And the ultimate source of freedom and that unshakable happiness and peace of heart that we all long for. And I think most, if not all of us, intuit and sometimes have tasted deeply. The root cause of that fundamentally is seeing clearly, is recognizing, you know, is being grounded in truth. It's the truth that sets us free. It's so darn unattractive when you're in your mid-50s and you're still doing the same thing. <laughs> well, moving on, but I've got a few more minutes, but I think there's great hope because, um, one, pain is a great motivator. Two, we're always learning. Can't do anything about the past. We have no control. Where we have impact is the next few minutes or seconds. You know, and the way I think of it is that in any moment, there's kind of a range of what's authentically possible, right? If, if our kid has, um, you know, just yelled at us in a really hurtful way, or uh, somebody has hit our car, or we come out and at the parking lot and someone has, you know, keyed our car, or I'm thinking recently somebody came to our door and, you know, told us that they had, you know, just kind of happily painted numbers on our curb. And, you know, could we donate $10 to their cause? And our numbers were actually just fine, you know, and they were perfectly clear. My wife said, nah, we're not going to do that. You know, good luck. And the next thing we knew, we got up the next morning, all the numbers on our curb address had been painted over in white paint. All right. So in that moment, however long that moment is, there's like a range of what's authentically possible. Or imagine something much more awful. 
The question is, are we at the low or the high end of that range? Moment by moment by moment. And that is what's under our control. That is where we do have power. And um, you know what we do, whether it's at the low end of that range or the high end of that range, moment by moment by moment, determines the, cor- determines the course of our life, time flowing this way. Is our learning curve kind of shallow? Or in some cases, uh, people who shall be nameless, who've sometimes have had high office, learning curve is declining, they know less at the end of the term than at the beginning, or others, you know, is our learning curve steep? Those little deltas, those little increments that are under our control in this range, moment to moment, are we here or here? That's what shapes the course of our life. And to me, that's the opportunity for us in each moment to relax into and open to practice, to be on our own side and to help ourselves moment by moment by moment. And at a time when so many of us feel pushed around by external forces and by our reactions to them, it's a beautiful thing to feel that we have this kind of efficacy, that in some sense we're a cue ball, not an eight ball, at least inside our own mind, at least within this range.